Greetings and happy Saturday from a beautiful, sunny South Carolina day. Today, we're jumping into a new subject, kind of pulling away from our series that we've been doing, kind of going through the New Testament, Old Testament canonicity. We're going to continue that trend. It's going to take a while before we get through the whole Bible. So just be patient over the next, you know, 25 years, something like that. Um, but we will get through the canon of scripture. But part of facts is also examining early church writings, church fathers, patristics, and examining the content in which they spoke. What were they quoting? What was their source of author um, authorship and authority and church conduct? Those kinds of things are essential for us to understand the DNA behind the church in which we still stand today. And in this episode, I want to really go into a letter that's most commonly ignored or not really even mentioned because maybe people don't know what it is. Quite frankly, I have just recently come across it in the point of actually studying it. I'd heard of it multiple times, never actually sat down, read it, observed it, studied its historicity. And that's because really we only have one manuscript that was of this letter. And unfortunately it was burned and destroyed in the 19th century, late 19th century. Uh, and I'm talking about the epistle of Diognetus. Uh, and one of the things that I want to focus on today is looking at why we should study this letter, why we should read this letter, and how we see an early defense of Christianity from an unknown Christian who's writing this to a what appears to be a Roman pagan governor or leader or some sort of person of great value to the government of Rome. Here in a letter, he's trying to describe Christianity as best as possible. So let's jump right into this letter. Let's talk about this epistle. So who's the writer? As I just stated a minute ago, it's anonymous. There's actually no name. He, he does have uh, descriptions or associations, but he does not mention I so-and-so. Now, it's very plausible and likely that the writer had his name penned somewhere on this letter, either on the outside, and it was just not preserved because the manuscript that we have that is no longer even around now was a 13th century manuscript copy, which we'll get into in a little bit. And it's possible that over time, the name either at the beginning or the end or on the outside of the letter uh, was just lost and it was left to speculation after that. But no one knows who the author is for certain. Only the recipient is specifically mentioned, uh, but the writer himself does speak about himself in chapter 11. And in chapter 11, he states this, having been a disciple or a student of the apostles, I have now become a teacher of the Gentiles. And one of the things that we're finding is this writer's associating himself as having been trained by the apostles. And he, made, he makes that plural. Now, I'm going to speak as to whom I think that might be in a minute. But he says that he was a disciple or a student of the apostles. And now he is a teacher of the Gentiles, indicating that the writing is probably not while the apostles are still living, but looking back at his training and his commissioning and how he is now practicing what he has been taught to a Gentile world. So he realizes himself, he's not, uh, going to give away any kind of location like why well, I'm in this city or that city, but it's clear his ministry is predominantly to the Gentile. 
And that means he's not probably in the area of Jerusalem. He's not in the area probably even of a close proximity to the Jewish people. Seems to be more in a Gentile way. In fact, we're going to see terms that he uses. We're going to see uh, styles of writing that he uses that would actually be more Greco-Roman. He seems to be speaking as if he was reflecting at his time and convinced of the doctrine at which he was taught. He even speaks of the doctrine in the early parts of the letter into the second chapter, the doctrine that he wants this Diognetus to actually consider and examine. And he teaches that it came from his understanding of the creator God and how he brought in his son into the world and that he became a man and taught his apostles, his apostles taught others. And so you see this teaching of being passed down. He's admitting that he is a disciple of that doctrine that was passed down from the Lagos, the son of God, to his apostles, now to him, now to him, to the Gentiles. He's continuing this doctrine he's carrying on to others. But he is speaking as if he's writing at a time where the apostles are no more, as if that was a past event. And he's continuing to minister in the same way he was taught by them. Now, his opening is very similar to Luke's prologue. I find, I find that part of it fascinating. He starts out by saying, Since I see you, most excellent Diognetus, exceedingly desirous to learn the mode of worshiping God, prevalent among the Christians, and inquiring very carefully and earnestly concerning them what God they should trust in and what form of religion they observe, so as all to look down upon the world itself, to despise death, while they neither esteem those to be gods that are reckoned such by the Greeks, nor hold the superstition of the Jews, and what is the affection which they cherish among themselves. And finally, why this new kind of practice has only now entered into the world and not long ago. I cordially welcome this to your desire. And I implore God who enables us both to speak and to hear, to grant to me, so to speak, that above all, I may hear you have been edified and to use to now, so to hear that I who speak may have no cause of regret of having done so. So he's imploring in this occasion, the epistle that he is actually pleading that God would open his ears, open his understanding give him speech in these words to show him the true and living God that is worshiped by the Christians. That's different from the Greek gods, different from a Gentile pagan world, different even from Judaism superstitions of God. He's now going to introduce that to Diognetus, but he does not reveal his name in the opening there, but he does the recipient, but it's similar to Luke's prologue, but his theology is extremely Johannine. In fact, he does not use the name Christos or Yesu for Jesus or Christ at all in this letter. He only uses the term Theuhuias, that is the Son of God, and the Logos or the Logos, the Word, which is Johannine, very Johannine. It is very likely, in my opinion, that he is actually a disciple of John based on the timing and the connection to the Asia Minor area, which we'll get into that as well. So I believe personally that when he says he's a disciple of the apostles, he is speaking explicitly 
of the Johannine discipleship, which would include more than just John because he said apostles, plural. Now, remember, if, if you have not listened to this, go back to the making of John's gospel podcast. I demonstrate that it is very likely that at least two of the other apostles were still living when John was written. That would be John and Andrew explicitly named, but perhaps others that were mentioned in there, maybe Philip, possibly Nathaniel, or Thomas. We really don't know, but he, he teaches their stories at least. But Andrew is mentioned as still being alive by name and imploring John to write. So perhaps he knew Andrew and John minimally. But his theology and terminology is that of John itself. So it could be that, that he was influenced to teach in Asia Minor, especially in that Greco-Roman area that was big on the concept of the Lagos in the Ephesus and in Philadelphia and Smyrna, that region, the Lagos was extremely important of a terminology that John started using in defense of Jesus, using a term they used in the ancient to actually bring light and understanding and completion and fulfillment through the person of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. It's interesting he continues to, to build that case using the term Lagos. And as John did, often the son of God, the Theuhuias. So it could be he's a disciple of the apostles, as he claims to be, but particularly the Johannine discipleship group. Now let's talk about the author. In, in continuing the author, what else do we know about? Well, in the past, some argued that this is Justin Martyr, given that the only manuscript that we had of it in the 13th century was a part of a collection that included Justin Martyr's writings. Now, again, unfortunately, that manuscript was destroyed in the in, in a fire in 1870. We do have copy of that manuscript, which is where our translations of it continued to this day. But it's English or older English, and there are some updated translations that guys have done of it. But that actual manuscript that was in the collection is gone. Now, this position is mostly faded out about it being Justin Martyr over the years, and, and really with good reason. Uh, a main one is the style of writing is not like Justin Martyr, Th though, again, it is apologetic in nature, like Justin Martyr's apology, but I don't think it's Justin Martyr. However, it could be that it was in that collection because it's in the same time frame as Justin Martyr. The writer demonstrates that Christians are good law-abiding citizens and live in a time of persecution by the Roman government. Phrases like this. They love all men and are persuaded by all, or excuse me, by persecuted by all. So they're, they're, they are persecuted, though they love the people that they're being persecuted by. So they're in a time of persecution. They are unknown and yet condemned. They are put to death and yet restored to life. That's in chapter five, which indicates that in this time, they're still experiencing hard-pressed persecution of Rome to the point of death. Now, we're going to come back to those words in a minute because I, I actually think we can link it to a location. Now, his theology, as I stated, is mostly Johanna, but you can also see other wording in here very similar to Paul especially in that chapter five section. A lot of terminology seems to be borrowed from Philippians and second Corinthians. And then he seems to build on the teachings of Jesus on the sermon on the Mount as demonstrated by Matthew's gospel. So he's clearly, 
influenced by other writings of scripture, not just the Johannine writings. He's clearly influenced by the concept of persecution by Paul, as he taught at 2 Corinthians Philippians, as Matthew and Jesus' teachings on the Sermon on the Mount, how to treat people, especially those that despise you, wrongfully use you, persecute you, hurt you. But he also uses the terminology of pilgrim and sojourner the same way 1 Peter does. He states in chapter 5, as citizens, they share in all things with others and yet endure all things as foreigners. Even foreign land is to them as their native country and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. He's using that pilgrimage. They're sojourners and strangers in the land concept which I find to be very important to the Petrine perspective of understanding a pilgrim in the Christian journey, going back to the exile terminology during the exiles of Babylon. So he borrows that concept as well. So he's clearly influenced by the apostolic texts. Now let's talk about the recipient. He is called, as we read, the most excellent Diognetus. The writing clearly demonstrates he's some sort of pagan Roman idol worshiping guy in chapter two. Uh, he, he actually tries to reason with him as to why he should not worship idols made of wood. That's already in the process of decay and rotting while it sits there to be worshiped. Why worship a stone and a rock that your, your physical human body once trampled on under your foot. Like you're going to worship something as a God that your feet as a man once stood on and trampled all over? You're going to worship an idol made of wood that is in the process of rotting as you worship it? <laughs> it's, it's no less of a decay than your body. It's decaying just like your body. So that, that's intriguing that he would appeal to that in chapter 2, but that demonstrates that he's obviously a pagan and a, a worshiper of idols. Now, there's two potential candidates for this Diognetus. The first was the tutor of the emperor, Marcus Aurelius, who admired Marcus Aurelius, or Marcus Aurelius admired Diognetus for the freedom from superstition and sound educational advice, which you can find in Meditations 1.6. So Aurelius actually reflected on a man who was his tutor named Diognetus, who he credited him for thinking differently outside of superstition, who gave him sound educational advice. So that's one possibility. Now, there's another possibility as well. A man by name of Tiberius Claudius Diognetus, who is around 200 AD, and that is a possibility as well. So that's why people typically date this between 130 and 200, and we're going to get into that more in a minute. But Charles Hill actually, I think, brings out an interesting perspective as well. He cites an inscription from Smyrna, probably going back to that second century period, and it's listed as Diognetus, son of Apollonius, the son of Diognetus Archon. Now, so there is a family of names of the Diognetus in the Smyrna region, and he, Hill, states that this is an evidence of, an, of really a family of leaders in Smyrna during the time of Polycarp. 
Now, keep in mind, Polycarp died around 155. He was a disciple of John the Apostle. And he was left to be a bishop in that area. Now, of which there were two members of a family around that time, by this inscription, with the name Diognetus. The grandfather and a grandson, basically. Both leaders in that region under the Roman Empire. That would place it in the Polycarp time, which Polycarp in his epistle to the Philippians, which <clears throat> I've talked about on this show multiple times and we'll actually get into eventually. But that's mid-second century when he died and his writings would have been right before the mid-second century, around the time of 130 to 150. So it could be that this writer is a companion and a connected disciple with Polycarp, which again, could be why it was in a collection of Justin Martyr around the same time frames, around that same era, because it was a part of that kind of disciple program of the disciples of the, of the Lord Jesus, like, like John. So it could be there is a connection to Polycarp and this writer. Because they're around the same time, same region, and both disciples of John himself, writing after John is dead and continuing their ministries in Asia Minor. So this inscription that we have, going back that's, that Charles Hill talks about, could be one of the diagnosis, either the grandson or the grandfather in the region of Smyrna. Now, I'm going to continue to build why I believe that this is probably the case. And it is very likely that these two are either the grandfather or the grandson in this inscription. And, and locationally in Smyrna, which would place it around the time of Polycarp, which helps us now with the date. With all the evidence that we just talked about, the Diognetus being Marcus Aurelius's tutor, the two potential there in Smyrna, or the one that's at the end of the first or the second century into the third century, going back to Tiberius Claudius Diognetus. I don't think it's the the, the later date. I don't. And, and I'm going to take it down. Now, it's possible, and we have to keep it in possibility, that's the end date of it. So we would say about 130 to 200. I'm going to bring that in a little closer. I've hinted at that I think it's the earlier dates, 130 to 150. Here's my reasoning for that as I continue to explain. As Hill points out this inscription, same family, grandson, grandfather. This fits the description of the people in Smyrna in Revelation 2, 8 through 11. Now I've already done the book of Revelation, demonstrated it's very late first century. And they speak of things. I, I want you to see the connections here. Speaking of the Smyrna church in Revelation, it speaks of their persecution, their poorness, <laughs> their death that awaits them in the future, and many of them would be killed. All things mentioned here of these believers in Smyrna were going to be in the near future. He said, you are about to suffer. And, and in a way, he actually mentions a 10-year span. Now, there's a lot of dispute about the, the number itself, being in apocalyptic literature, is that literal? Whatever it may be. Let's just say it's literal for a minute. 
let's say Revelations right between 96, 98, somewhere in there, 95, 97, somewhere in that ballpark. Add 10 years, you're in the second century, about 105 to 108. Uh, and with that being stated, that puts us early second century when things are going to bring about a heavier persecution and a point of death, which would bring us into Trajan and so forth. Now, it's very possible that this writing, this epistle, is looking back at how that is now the reality for them. So consider this. In Revelation 2, they are told they're about to suffer coming up. Now, let's compare that to this epistle. In Revelation 2, he tells them to be faithful unto death. In the epistle in chapter 5, they have been put to death. Many of them have been put to death. So, Revelation speaking of an event soon to come, which involves people being put to death. This epistle is looking back saying people have been put to death. <clears throat> also in Revelation 2, you have your poverty. You are in poverty, yet you are rich. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Well, yeah, because in the epistle 5, it says they, being Christians, are poor, yet make many rich. So again, they're in a state of poverty. Revelation 2. They are slandered by those who call themselves Jews. In that same section in Epistle 5. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners, treated as outcasts. They're being mistreated by Jews and mishandled in such a manner. It's exactly what Revelation 2 said about what was going on in Smyrna. Also in Revelation 2, speaks of persecution and tribulation. Same section in chapter 5 of that epistle. They love all men and are persecuted by all. So you see this <clears throat> kind of consistency of what they're going through in Smyrna. So you have an inscription in Smyrna about two, a grandfather and grandson with the name Diognetus. You have descriptive nature of what's going on in Smyrna at the end of the first century, predicting what will happen in the second. Here's a second century writing reflecting on a type of persecution that would put it around the same time after John's life. And what do we have? Looking back on the events that revelations that were about to happen to these Christians in Smyrna. And he's writing to somebody as if this is the reality of Christians in a location to a guy who has a, a, an inscription of his name in that time, either the grandson or the grandfather. So I think personally, we should consider the inscription, the description, based on connecting to the end of the first century in Revelation and Smyrna itself, the description in the text, comparing to the Smyrna church at the end of the first century, and what this guy is saying is happening to some Christians in that area. And then we have the inscription of this family of Diognetus, and we can place that within the parameters of the Polycarp time of leadership in the Church of Smyrna and get 130 to 150. I think that's a good place to place 
this, which means this is a very early apologetic of the Christian faith. And one of the most unique, because he's not writing to Christians about how to defend their faith. He's writing a defense of the faith to a Roman leader who's intrigued and interested in the Christian faith. So we have an early writing of a Christian defending the faith to an unbelieving pagan leader. Another reason we should take that time frame, in my opinion, is we should take the writer serious when he said he was a disciple of the apostles. I mean, there's no need for a forgery or even a benefit to a forgery in writing a personal letter explaining what Christianity is against paganism and Judaism. This isn't written to a church bearing an apostle's name on it, trying to deceive the masses into believing credibility. As we see a lot of second century Gnostic gospels and epistles, Peter to Philip, the gospel of Thomas, the gospel of Mary being Mary Magdalene, or the gospel according to Jan whatever name of an eyewitness you want to place. That's what the forgery sought to do and they're written to congregations. This, this isn't trying to sell you on being a certain person. I, Simon, Peter, and my brother Andrew went fishing, like the gospel of Peter. It's not doing that. It's not trying to sell you that it's an individual. In fact, it doesn't even name himself. He's writing a personal letter. He's not trying to sway a whole congregation. There's no reason to believe this is some forgery. What, what benefit is it? It's not an inscription of an apostle's name trying to sell authorship and authority. And it's not a church that it's trying to sway the masses into believing some sort of new thing. It's an individual personal letter where the name isn't even in the body of the text. And the writer isn't selling out to be an apostle here, but stating he is merely a disciple of the apostles, which doesn't give him much credibility as it would an apostle. But, as you can see, like, what? why shouldn't we just take the writer serious? There, there's really no occasion for forgery here. None. There's nothing to benefit from. But in this, I could see how this would have been a post-John era, given the wording, and a writer that was under his ministry serving in Asia Minor, along with Polycarp and some of these others, perhaps during the time of Just a Martyr, and writing a letter to an individual making an offense of Christianity in the Smyrna region, perhaps the grandson or the grandfather. I don't know which one. I'm not definitively saying 100% that's who it is. But with the inscription and the description, it seems to me by comparing the times, the location, and the things Christians were going through, and the connectivity to that era, it seems like this is a writer from the church of Smyrna, writing to a leader in Smyrna, and, and talking about Christianity in that region. So I would place it between 130 and 150. The content, let's talk about that and we'll close there. This letter is an apologetic of the Christian faith and practice. And I find that intriguing. He does not just defend the doctrine. He defends the doctrine that's consistent with the practice which was first Peter's instructions in chapter five. See, the problem with a lot of modern day apologetics is we're intellectual exercising our brains, intellectually exercising our brains and defending the doctrine, the statement of truth, the facts, 
which I am 100% for, of course. Name my program after facts. But it's bigger than that. A true apologetic is a Christian faith that has a consistent Christian practice. And that's what he is defending. Not what they believe. Only. Because what good is that if the practice doesn't follow their belief? That's just another system. He's demonstrating that we practice what we believe. This is our apologetic. The writer contrasts the Jewish religion with the fulfillment of that religion in Christianity. And he calls the Jews foolish <laughs> who continue to cling to the letter of the law and missing the spirit of the law and the ability to live in freedom by the son of God and putting the law in its proper place. He also condemns paganism and the belief system of worshiping many gods, the gods of certain things by making images out of lesser things to be worshiped. Now it's split into 12 chapters, which I, I'm going to give you those chapters. Chapter one uh, is the occasion of the epistle. Now, again, people split these later. This isn't the writer. The occasion of the epistles in chapter one. Chapter two is the vanity of idols. We talked about that. Chapter three is the superstition of the Jews, which I just mentioned. Chapter four is the observances of the Jews, which again, I just mentioned. Now, chapter five is the consistency of the manner of Christianity, the way they live. Chapter six is the relation of the Christians to the world, how they view themselves in the world, that pilgrimage, that sojourning. They're in the world, but not of it. Chapter seven is the manifestation of Christ. He is the Lagos. He is, though seems new and young, he is old and from everlasting, which means the writer believed in the preexistence of Christ and that he was the eternal creator who became a part of his creation. There's an early defense that the interpretation of John 1 is that Jesus pre-existed time and was the, the eternal creator who stepped into his creation and time. This writer clearly believed Jesus, the Logos, was God. God himself, though appearing young and new, was from ancient and everlasting. In chapter 8, he speaks of the miserable state of men before the coming of the world, the condition of man. Chapter 9, why the son was sent so late. <laughs> he was wrestling with, well, what took so long for the son of God to finally come into the world, the Logos, to redeem people? Why didn't he come earlier? Same question we all wrestle with, really. In chapter 10, the blessing that will flow from faith in the son of God, in the Logos. Chapter 11, these things are worthy to be known and believed within the blessings and that the things that the, that the Son of God does for his people. Chapter 12, the importance of knowledge of the true spiritual life, which he builds this Edenic state, invites the reader into the paradise of God, a restored Eden, which I love. I love that section. But there is controversy to those last two chapters, and we'll talk about here. So when the text ends in chapter 12, there's something that needs to be noted in chapter or in chapter 12. It ends. There's something to be noted about in chapter 10. It breaks off apparently in some mid thought. And then when the text resumes, the style changes for that final two chapters, which resembles what the Greeks called 
the epilogos, or what we call an epilogue, which is a final part of speech. And it typically contains two purposes when you're talking about classical rhetoric. Now, what they do is this. One, remind the audience of the main points of the prior speech. Two, try to influence the emotion of the reader or the audience in order to pull them into the truth and connect intimately with them. Now, this became not just part of the Greek writing. The Romans did the same things. Roman orders did the same thing all the time in making the emotional appeal at the very, very end. Statement of fact, here's the realities. Here's something to consider. Here's a brain exercise. And then emotionally pull all that together. Romans did the same thing. Now, some have attributed these last two chapters as being add-ons. Some have attributed to Hippolytus of Rome. I don't see how that's the case. Hippolytus of Rome was not really dealing with this part of the world. And I do not think this was something that originated there. I think this is something that, again, Asia Minor, particularly Smyrna. But they would say the similarities are there between thought and style. Yeah, maybe. Now, Lightfoot suggested that the final two chapters have been written by Pontanaeus, who I, I've actually used a few times as a reference, specifically on Matthew. But he thinks it was done in the mid to late second century. Yeah, possibly. I think it is entirely plausible that the writer gave his epilogue from the same foundational principles as the Greeks and the Romans. He appeals to the reader, Diognetus, with remembrance and emotion, creating an Edenic state. Here's what I get tired of. Why does the change of style always have to equal interpolation with scholars? What if? Just, just what if? Now, by the way, it could be that case. But it's not a standard for every interpolation or a change of section or a change of style, change of format. Why can't it be <laughs> that the original writer gives an apologetic defense of the faith against Judaism and paganism, of the Christian practice consistent with their doctrine and faith, the blessing of it despite the persecution, appeals the same way a Roman leader would in court, using the epilogus, the epilogue, a reminder of the already stated truths and an appeal of the emotion to come in and accept it. After all, he's writing to the most excellent Diognetus. Wouldn't it be a great way to use an apologetic on a Roman leader by using the same Greek style of endings or even a Roman defense that you find in other Roman literature that appeals to the mind and the emotion? Like, why can't that just be the answer? <laughs> I mean, is it possible that it was added later? Sure, sure, of course. But why does it have to automatically be because style changes? Maybe he implemented the epilogue, the Greco-Roman style of appeal to the mind and the motion at the very end of a letter. Remember, we're saying, well, it interrupted chapter 10 and then 11 and 12. He didn't split these into chapters. 
Could it be that he finished his thought? And in the mid thought, we finally reached the climax of his point in chapter 10, which is the blessings that flow from faith. And then appealed to that emotion, appealed to that standard by drawing in Diognetus to the intellectual that these things are worthy to be known and believed. That's the mind. Because that's what chapter 11 is about. These things are worthy to be acknowledged and asserted with your mind and believed on in the heart. And then draw him into the emotional state of a renewed world that's brought back to its original state of perfection in Eden, to the emotion. So chapter 11 is an appeal to the mind. Chapter 12 is an appeal to the emotion. Seems to me he's following the same standard the Greeks and Romans did. It doesn't have to be an interpolation. So in conclusion, the epistle, the, the epistle to Diognetus. I think it is a second century disciple of John in the region of Smyrna, a companion of Polycarp around 130 to 150, appealing to either the grandson or the grandfather that we have of the inscriptions in Smyrna, who were Roman leaders at that time. And he's appealing to them in their interest of Christianity, whether the Roman leaders reached out to some of the church leaders or not. This man was designated to write. I would never exclude the opportunity that Polycarp wrote this. Um, his endearment is similar to his epistle in Philippians. I'm not saying it's him. I'm just saying I, I would never be shocked if further evidence ever came that Polycarp wrote this epistle um, and that the leader in Smyrna himself was Polycarp appealing to a Roman authority. I, I would never be shocked about that. Uh, because the disposition is very Polycarp-like. But that just could, could be because they're friends or companions and were trained by the same apostle and have the same disposition that they were taught to have. So that could be the similarity there too. I don't think it is, but I would never exclude it either. But I think it is somebody at that time frame writing this letter, giving defense of the Christian faith and practice and inviting a pagan into the kingdom of God and a restored Eden. I think it's incredible. I think it's a wonderful letter. I think Christians should read it. And I think we should know it and we should learn from it. We should glean from its tactic and approach to dealing with unsaved people. And then once again, it's another neglected thing that we in church history have forgotten and, 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 not utilized in our arsenal. And I just think we need to do better in getting familiar with these texts. It's a great letter. I think we should consider it. I think it's a help and an aid to our understanding of the time and the forms of Christianity that were around, what they were dealing with, how they dealt with it, and also seeing what our church heritage went through. And we should start taking these principles of faith and practice and applying them to our own DNA and how we do things in church. So thank you again for tuning in. I appreciate the time that you always give. And I ask that you listen to this carefully and, and share it with others who may not know about this and say, hey, have you ever heard of this letter before? I listened to a podcast who did work on it. Would you take a listen? I think it would be helpful. I think people would appreciate it. And as always, we invite you to check out more of our content at Explore Christianity uh, and our website on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You can find all of our work there. You can find our research, our writings, and a lot of our debates. We invite you to tune in and ask questions. There's an email listing where you can go in and actually email your questions to us. We get them all the time. We've been getting them on Facebook Messenger as well. 
So we invite you into that. We invite you uh, to ask us anything and, and further advance uh, what the Lord's doing in our ministry. And we'd love to help you and your church and your families in any way that we can. Grace and peace to you.